Hello everyone. This podcast is brought to you by Techniche 2021, which is the annual techno management festival of IIT Guwahati. Welcome to our podcast series, The Tech Check, which is presented by lecture series, the most elegant module of Techniche. Today, we have with us a very special guest, Dr. All Globus, who was the former editor in chief of the NSS Space Settlement Journal. He has been decorated with several awards and honors from NASA. including the NASA Public Service Medal he has also won the Feynman Prize in Nanotechnology he has worked at the NASA Ames Research Center where he co-founded a space settlement contest for, for students from 6th to 12th grade he has been at the forefront of inspiring young minds to find solutions to space colonization which is indeed a very exciting future to look forward to he has in fact designed three orbital space settlements himself and has also co-authored the book the high frontier an easier way welcome sir it is a great privilege to have you here oh well thank you thank you for having me i'm really looking forward to this thank you sir now since we will be talking about space settlements for the next few minutes you could probably begin by telling us what exactly is a space settlement and why do we really need one uh, because earth is pretty habitable and um, so in such a situation why do we really need to spend all those um, efforts money and time into settling elsewhere a space settlement is a gigantic spacecraft that you live inside okay that's the simplest explanation now that 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 um, maybe uh on a planet or on the moon or it may be in orbit so that's just what it is physically what it is and the but the more difficult question is why would we want such a thing um to live in space is very dangerous it's expensive it's hard to do um so why would you bother with that and there's there's two answers to that number 1 survive and number 2 thrive So there are th- there are th- there are things that have happened to this earth many times in the past which if they happened today would wipe us out and when I mean they wipe us out I mean destroy civilization at least uh for the bigger ones it will kill all the people and for the even bigger ones it might wipe out 75 80 90% of all species uh the classic example is um we had uh A, a major extinction event where the uh the the an asteroid struck earth and with enormous power and uh, probably killed off about 95% of all species on the planet that's going to happen again we don't know when and we can actually do something about it we can we can detect these large asteroids we think we know where the largest ones are and we are developing techniques to deflect them so that they won't hit earth but there are other things that can happen you can have super volcanoes go off um even in historical record a few hundred years ago there was a event over a year up where where the temperatures dropped for years and that was caused by volcanoes going off in um Iceland at least we believe they were um there's pandemics we're in the middle of a pandemic right now fortunately this pandemic kills between about 1 or 2% of the people that it infects but if that number were larger if it was 70 80 90% 
uh, civilization would be in, in, in danger. So, so long as we're on one planet, we are not safe. We're, we're not able to, to work our way around these problems. If we are on multiple planets and we have settlements in orbit, maybe thousands of them, and something like this happens to Earth, we can't prevent it for some reason, then all that capability, all that civilization, all those machines, all those tools, all those trained people, they will be available for saving Earth, for bringing Earth back from the, from the destruction. And if there are any survivors, can, can rescue the survivors before they, before they die off. So that's the survival part of it, okay? And that is, I mean, if you, if you don't have survival, you don't have anything, right? So, but, but we don't want to be living like, you know, just hanging on by our fingernails and ready to plunge down the cliff into the abyss. We do not, that's not how we want to live. And that's where the thrive bit gets at, right? Now, when we say thrive, what do we mean? Well, we mean something with dynamicism and growth. If you go to a garden that is thriving, it, it is, it's bursting with life and all the plants are going and they're happy and they're competing and they're, and they're you know, some, plant, some plants are getting shoved out and away, other ones are getting stronger, but they're, they're, they're surviving and they're going well. They have the equivalent of great wealth. Because if you take this solar system and you look at the energy of the solar system you, and you look at the materials of the solar system, the total amount of energy developed in the, uh, available in the... Um, uh, this solar system is two billion times more energy than we have available to us on Earth. Two billion times. You can do a lot of thriving with two billion times the energy that impinges on Earth. Now, we're not going to use all of that energy. That would be kind of weird. But we can use an awful lot of it without causing much damage. So that's energy. So what do you need to thrive besides energy? You need materials. If you take the asteroids, the asteroids alone, not, not any, any other, not any planets, not any moons, and you take them and you tear them apart, and you put them back together as, um, as space settlements, as free space settlements, those that are in orbit, you get about 400 times the surface area of the Earth in terms of land. So that's enough, enough country there's enough, enough land for every country on Earth, there's about 200 countries on Earth, to have the equivalent of two Earths of territory without taking it from anybody, without pushing anybody out of the way, without you know uh, uh, oppressing any local people. None of that. None of that is necessary because it's the, the material is there in massive quantities ready for the taking. Okay. And you, I mean, you want some, some sort of regime so that those, those countries that can't uh, uh, take advantage of these opportunities right now, that they're not going to get left out in the cold and have nothing, you know, that, that the United States and Russia and a half a dozen other countries, you know, take over all the asteroids. That, that's something we don't want either. But we're talking about 400 times the surface area of the Earth. There's plenty for everybody. All you have to do is share, which you should have learned how to do in, in kindergarten. Okay. So, um, so you, you got, we've got growth, we've got massive amounts of material, we've got massive amounts of energy, we have um, a, a situation where we can thrive. And I think I may have, I think I've answered the first question. Where's the second one? 
Um, I think you answered both of them. So the first question was what, and second question was how. And I think you answered the how really well. There are so many um, exciting possibilities, and a whole new realm of opportunities could be opened up by just pushing our boundaries beyond this planet. Um, but you mentioned that uh, there are mainly two kinds of settlements. Um, one is of the kind which orbits a certain planet. Uh, I think they are called orbital space settlements, and the other is of the kind um, that. is on the surface of a planet so how would you compare these two in terms of uh, the feasibility the practicality and um, the remaining factors that you mentioned uh, survival and thriving so uh, how do you think they both compare well if you're considering if you're, if you're thinking we're comparing um a settlement which is in orbit they're called orbital settlements or free space settlements Uh, it, people use different terms more or less interchangeably. Um, in, in free space, as we know, we have enough enough materials in the solar system to make 400 times the surface area of the Earth in places to live. Now, maybe it's only 300, or maybe it's 350, or maybe it's 500, but it's somewhere number, some kind of around there. In in on, on the surface of a planet or moon, the really the only ones that work in this solar system are Mars and the Moon. Um, The gas planets are the giant gas planets. They have no sur- solid surface. We can't live there, even with our machines. We can't live there. Venus is ridiculously hot. It's, it's absurd. Mercury is also just absolutely fine. Yeah, you could probably put something on Mercury, but the total amount of land area you're going to get is going to be about the land area of Earth. So we got all this big in trouble to get no more than we already have. So it doesn't seem like quite the right thing. But the, there's a much bigger problem, and this this may not be a problem, or it may be completely fatal to the to the moon and the Mars. The gravitational force that you feel on the surface of Mars is about one third g, about one third of what you and I are feeling here right now. Okay, and for Mars, that number is one sixth. Now, if you're going to have a settlement, you know that. That that implies to me, and this is sort of the definition of a settlement: is this is a place where you raise children. If you don't have any children, it's not sustainable, and it's not a settlement. Now, there's, a, there's nothing wrong with that. If you want to have uh, a work, uh, you know, you want to go and work in space, you can go to a space station. Space station is a great place to do work. You can all do all kinds of stuff. If you want to have fun in space, you should go to a space hotel. And we already have some state. You have one station up there right now. I don't want to think. I think the Chinese have another one up there too. Um, we don't have any hotels yet, but a hotel is really—it's it, fairly simple. It's—it's it's about the same as a space station, except you don't have all that scientific gear. So, um, but so the last case is if if you have if you have children involved, then you've got a settlement. Okay. Now, if you've got children involved, they are growing up at one third g or one six g. We have no idea what's going to happen to children under that circumstance. It's a safe bet to assume that they will grow up weak compared to people on Earth, and that visiting Earth would be either excruciatingly painful or completely out of the question whatsoever. Now we don't know if children would be okay if they lived their entire lives. On the moon at one third g, would that be bad? We don't know. Okay, 
So what we need to do, we need to build a facility in low Earth orbit where it's easy to get to. It spins. And it spins to provide artificial gravity. Free space settlements use this technique to produce artificial gravity. Um, and then we can do experiments with, with uh, mammals and plants and, and eventually and adults and then people. We can see how they can tolerate rotation and how they can tolerate lower G levels. Now, maybe it'll come out. It's okay. You won't be able to visit Earth, which is definitely a bummer. But other than that, it's okay. Maybe it's okay. Then you can say, yeah, we can go ahead and colonize uh, the moon and Mars. Or it may come out as, no, you, your, your kids are going to grow up. They're horribly twisted and, you know, it's just like, it's not going to work. And we don't know which of those ones it's going, it's going to be, or if it's going to be somewhere kind of in the middle where it's, it's only very bad for children, or it's only a little bit bad or whatever. In any case, we've got to do those, those studies. Okay. So um, now the, the big advantage of space settlements on the surface is you have the materials of the surface. So on the moon or Mars, for instance, you, you need to keep uh, radiation levels down. In moon and Mars, there's a lot of radiation on the moon, moon and Mars. Um, but you can do that by simply piling enormous amounts of soil on top of your settlement. You need, uh, according to my calculations and a bunch of studying of, of standards books and so forth and so on, you need to have uh, about, on the surface, about eight tons of lunar material per square meter in order to give adequate protection for settlers. Now, you might go and look in your candy dandy astronaut handbook and it says, oh, but the astronauts only need so and so much and that, that number, they're allowed to have much more radiation than you would on the surface. Well, that makes sense for an, for an astronaut who's going to be up there for six months. It doesn't make sense necessarily for somebody who's going to live there their entire life. They're going to be exposed to that radiation for 60, 70, 80 years. You need a lower threshold. And the threshold that I came up with after extensive study of the, of the research literature, doesn't mean it's right, but it means that it has thought behind it, is 20 millisieverts per year is what you can, you can ex, is acceptable amount of radiation for living in space. Now, a sievert is a measure of the radiation damage to tissue. So that's, it's also, you can also use it for materials, but we're concerned with living things right now. So it, it, it's an amount of tissue. 20 millisieverts is 21 thousandths of a sievert. So it's, it's a you know, fairly small number compared to most sieverts. And 20 uh, millisieverts per year is also incidentally the occupational threshold for radiation workers. So people who uh, are, are radio, uh, uh, x-ray technicians, nuclear power plant operators, nuclear submarine uh, inhabitants and so forth, this is, this is uh, the sort of thing that this is designed for. Okay. Now, I think this is a good number, but you can make an argument and say, oh, it should be 10 millisieverts, or it should be 50 millisieverts. There are places in India where there are, you know, maybe 100, 100 millisieverts, and, um, and the people there are just fine. Okay? So, you know, take your pick. So, but if you go with 20 millisieverts per year, you need eight tons of material on, say, the moon or Mars, for every square meter of, of, uh, of area. If you're in a free space settlement, if you're in an orbital settlement, um, say around, orbiting around Earth or even orbiting around the moon, uh, around the uh, sun, it doesn't actually matter which one, um, then you need 11 tons of regolith per square meter. Now, if you, if you go, if you have the water, you can do it for seven tons. 
because water is a better uh, uh, radiation shield than regolith. Um, but that's a lot of material. Now, when uh, the, the, the movement for space settlement in the United States was started by a guy named Jerry O'Neill, Dr. Jerry O'Neill. He was a Princeton professor, a physics professor, who made some very, developed a very important instrument um, for studying uh, atomic particles. He also um, started a whole uh, system, academic system um, uh, to uh, study space settlement. He sort of ran into the idea and, and developed it. And <laughs> I, I, I always get a little lost when I go off on O'Neill because he did such great stuff, and now I can't remember the original question. Um, do you? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I think you pretty much answered it. The question was about um, the comparison between orbital space settlements and those on the surface of a planet. So from whatever you said, uh, I understand that for um, any self-sufficient and sustainable space settlement, uh, the primary requirements are to provide a more natural environment to the inhabitants and this comes from um, shielding them from radiation and providing uh, a suitable source of artificial gravity um, amongst many other things probably so uh, in an orbital space settlement how do we provide artificial gravity for starters and uh, how do we shield them from radiations uh, what are the methods involved and uh, what's the ideal structure that you would envision for providing artificial gravity more effectively okay so um the way you provide artificial gravity you can't really do it on the surface of a planet i mean you can you can design a system that sort of does it but it's it's just ridiculous um the way you do it is you rotate now if you've ever been in a car going fast and it goes around a corner you'll know you get pressed up against the the, the door um and if you just kept going in a circle with your car at, at, at a high speed, you would feel that, that force continuously. And if the car was big enough, say 100 meters across, you could stand up and there you would be. If, and if you went at exactly the right speed for the, for the distance you are, you'd be 1G. Faster, you'd be higher G, totally be lower G. So that, and you take advantage of that exact same force. Now, what people will tell you is that that's all very well and good, but you have to rotate slowly. You have to rotate at one RPM, that's rotations per minute or less. If you rotate faster, then the astronauts will get sick. Now, I've looked at the literature and I've studied the, the uh, experiments, and there's a critical thing that is left out of that analysis. Yes, if you, if you rotate fast, say four RPM, rotations per minute, if, if, you, if you go to that from, a, from a non-rotating environment quickly, you will probably get ill. You will probably get sick. But you know something? In, um, in a couple of hours, or maybe at worst a couple of days, you'll feel fine. I mean, after all, if you and I went to Nepal right now, and we got out of the plane, we would get altitude sickness. That doesn't mean that Nepal can't be and people live there. We know people live there. It's not, it's not a question. So it's the same sort of thing. If you that, And the reason this is important is if you want to build a settlement, settlements are incredibly difficult to build. The smaller the settlement, the easier it is to build. Now, if you rotate at one RPM, then um, your radius 
has to be about 1,790 meters in order to get 1G. However, to get 1G at 4 RPM, you need a radius of about 112 meters. The 112 meters is about the size of the International Space Station, the long dimension of the International Space Station. It's within the rate, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like in the, re the region of stuff we know how to make. Right. And if you, go, if you go a little smaller, like at 2 RPM, you get a 450 meter radius. But so you can pick, you know, and the thing is, in terms of, of how to build space settlements, the, the way to do it is to start with the easiest, simplest, closest thing we can and um, and then build it on, on from there. And so I think that, that that smallest you can get away with is 112 meters in, uh, uh, in diameter. Now, it also ties into radiation because a, a typical settlement, free space or orbital space settlement um, uh, mass, 99%, between 95 and 99% is radiation shielding. That's what makes it hard. And that's why Jerry O'Neill put his settlement at L5, which is a, a, sta a stable point in the Earth-Moon system. And in order to use an electromagnetic catapult based on his physics work, um, to send materials, millions of tons of materials to L5, actually to L2, and then the catcher takes them to L5. Uh, L2 is an unstable point in its gravitational system um, in order to provide millions of tons of radiation shielding. But there's a way to get around it. If you put your settlement below about six or 700 kilometers around Earth, low Earth orbit, um, about, about five, six, 700 kilometers, something like that, and you keep your settlement very close to the equator, Radiation levels aren't that low, aren't that high. I'm sorry. Radiation levels aren't very high at all. As a matter of fact, I've done calculations using Alteris, which is NASA's system for studying um, uh, radiation environments. If you're at 500 kilometers and you uh, stay exactly over the the, uh, the equator, you you have radiation load on a bad year less than 20 millisieverts per year. Now, if you remember, 20 millisieverts a year was our, was our threshold. Okay, What that means is you can build a settlement in low Earth orbit without any radiation shielding, which is 95 to 99% of the mass. So that means you're a factor of 20 to 100 less mass. In addition, you make it smaller by rotating at 4 RPM, and all of a sudden you've got a small settlement that is arguably within our grasp, almost within our grasp. As a matter of fact, one can imagine pretty easily that if you, um, if you start building hotels, and a hotel has got very similar requirements to a settlement. You need to keep people alive, you have to have you know, entertainment and so forth and so on. It's not the same, but it makes income and settlements don't right away. Actually, they, they can, but we get there. So, um, you have a situation where you get rid of most mass. That means you can launch everything from Earth. You don't need to develop lunar materials or asteroid materials. Now, you want to. Eventually, you want to, but if you don't have to do it at first, that makes it all simpler. So, I believe that the simplest, smallest, 
closest settlement that you can that can possibly work is about runs rotates at four RPM. It's in a 500 kilometer uh, orbit. It has no dedicated radiation shielding because you don't need it, and it stays very close to the equator. Okay. So mm -hmm. we talked uh, we talked about radiation. We talked about um, uh, artificial gravity. Also, I believe it's time to go on to the next question. Uh, yes, sir. So, um, a settlement which can um, house a good number of people. Uh, I think the primary requirement is that it should have people of um, different kinds so that it can qualify as a settlement. Uh, so, how, what do you think would be the requirements for people um, who would have to make the space travel? Uh, are there any rigorous health standards that these people have to meet up to before um, they can travel to it, similar to what our astronauts undergo? Uh, do they need some kind of a training? And uh, what would the housing capacity of such a settlement approximately be? Okay. The housing capacity um, really depends on your assumptions about how crowded you want to be. But it's probably on the order of 500 people. You probably don't want to have a whole lot less than 500 for social reasons. And, and, and 500 might be, might be too low, might need more people. I, I don't think it's necessarily the case that um, space settlements will have a diverse population. I mean, remember that Homo sapien has lived in, in homogeneous groups for hundreds of, for tens of thousands of years. I think it might be 100,000 or 130,000, a long time. And it's only very recently that we have started thinking uh, that, that it, we, what you really want to have is a diverse world. Um, and I think that the reason for that is we're going to have a diverse world whether we want it or not. And I want it. Okay, I'll just be honest. <laughs> but there are people that they really, really want to live just with their own kind. They're Presbyterians. They all want to be Presbyterians. They only want to live with Catholics. Uh, they only want to live with, with, uh, with white people. They only want to live with black people. They only want to live with brown people. Okay, so you can, you can agree or not disagree and think that this is good or not horrible, but it's also true that people will be like that. There's no particular reason to say, oh, well, you know, uh, the Vatican put together a whole bunch of money and bought themselves a space settlement and an XYZ corporation uh, builds it for them, and now they're going to inhabit it entirely with, with Catholics. Okay? And then in another orbit, not too far away, there might be um, a, a, a settlement that's in, in, in completely uh, Hindi. You know? uh, you know, who am I to say that that's, that's a bad thing? So I, I, think that there, I think there will be settlements that are, that are diverse, like you're suggesting. I think there will also be settlements that are um, they're not diverse. That are all all kind of everything the same sort of people, and and that's probably okay. The other thing is if if that's really what they want, they really want to live, all, you know, just by. It's probably better if they did, you know, um, that you know, uh, uh, that's that's how you get it. So, I want to get. I actually want to get back to how we we build the settlement. So we start off with a real small settlement, and we build up hotels until it's the same size as the settlement. And then we rotate it faster. Hotels, the larger hotels will probably rotate a little bit because when you put your spoon down, you know, you won't just drift off. 
You know, the other thing is, and uh, you know, hide your ears if you're if you're uh, squeamish about this sort of thing. Um, a zero G toilet is very difficult to operate. When you're talking about training people for, if you're training them for tourism to go, you know, for temporarily out, um, it'll probably be the most difficult task that they really have to have to master. Right? If you have a little bit of rotation, that makes everything much, 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 much simpler. Now, also, I actually want to get back. Uh, no, because I'm going to finish this. So, eventually, you get your settlement, your hotels the size of settlements. Then you turn it into a settlement and make it stronger. You rotate it faster. Um, you might make it a little bit bigger, and so forth and so on. And then you build a bunch of them, and you gradually grow them bigger and bigger. Eventually, you're going to start filling up lower Earth orbit, or you're just going to want to have people go beyond. But by then we'll have a source of, raw, of materials. Because right now, if you wanted to order 50 tons of lunar dust, you can't do it. And there's a lot that has to happen before you can do it, before you can do that. So, if and the main thing you have to have is you need to have a market. You need somebody in space willing to buy 50 tons of regolith. Okay? And space settlement can do that. You can do that in low Earth, in low Earth orbit. And so when you get to the time to move beyond low Earth orbit, you already have a lunar and perhaps asteroidal mining business going. All you have to do is scale it up. You know how to do it. And so then you get to the point where you can, you can build off of local materials, and now you can move out and, and, and get materials from the moon for radiation protection. Get radiation. It allows you an incremental step to get further and further out until you go to um, the asteroid belt. And maybe you have settlements that are next to asteroids, and that's how they, that's their material source. And then you might go to the Jupiter belt. You might go to icy objects in the outer part of the solar system. Now, here's the thing is that the icy bits of our solar system overlap a little bit with, with uh, Alpha Centauri, Alpha Proxima, sorry, sorry, Alpha Proxima. And so there might be two objects, if we, if we look hard enough, that you can transfer from one to the next. And then you can start working your way down, and then you get to the first star. Now, this is going to take a long time, okay? But if you have lived in rotating space settlements, maybe, you know, 20 miles across, uh, 20 kilometers across, say, okay? And if you've lived in them for 40 generations, what do you care where it is? Halfway to Alpha Proxima or near the Earth? I mean, big deal. You've you got your friends, you've got your family. And if you're going to tra travel to Alpha Proxima, maybe you go to five or six different settlements. So you can, you know, if something's going wrong in one settlement, you kind of make a few enemies, you can move to one of the other ones or something like that. Um, uh, and so you can gradually work your way to the next star and getting better and better at all these sorts of things. And then you go to, and then you go to the next star, and the next star, and the next star, and so forth and so on. Okay. Uh, so it looks like a lot of um, avenues open up once we have constructed a space settlement. As you mentioned, um, we could procure lunar materials, we could procure materials that's hidden in the asteroid belt, and all of these materials could be sold for a good price on Earth. So the settlement could probably economically sustain itself, and uh, I think that was the first thing you mentioned about a settlement. It needs to be sustainable. So sustainability could be sorted in these ways, I suppose. And um, the microgravitational research that you were talking about, um, probably that could also be done easily in um, lower orbits since the gravity is naturally lower over there. Uh, so this all really seems very exciting. Uh, it seems like a lot of possibilities could open up with 
our present day technologies without involving a lot of technologies that are from the far future uh, so i wanted to ask you um, what would for figuring out so many things about uh, space settlements and doing research in this particular field was there a turning point in your life uh, that told you that okay now um, i need to uh, figure out a way to settle in space or how was it and what would be your message to um, kids who dream about space and have such big dreams of making humanity multiplanetary like yourself well let me let me step back to the economic bit and then we'll get we'll get to the what uh, there was a particular incident that happened that, that made me turn on space up so the the hardest thing to make economically work is the first space seller and if you can get that one to be economically kind of reasonable then then you can then you can work from there that works okay now if you've got a small settlement with 500 people at about 500 kilometers orbit the first and simplest thing for you to sell is the people who are on board keep their day job now, i used to be a musician And when you're a musician, you often have your you have your day job and you have your night job. Your night job is when you love you know play music, that's what you love. Your day job you do because you have to pay the rent. Okay. Now the people on this settlement are going to have to be pretty wealthy because it's probably going to cost four or five million dollars for a couple to to, to move there, maybe more. Um, so they may have jobs that you can work at remotely, like as thousands, millions of people have been doing lately because of the pandemic. So the first and simplest thing that we do to be economically sustainable is keep your job. Do the same job, do it from orbit. If you're at 500 kilometers up, you can plug right into the Earth's communication system. I mean, you'll need some SCARI and things like that, but we have we got a few decades before we really have to worry about actually doing this. Um uh so you can get your, get your same job, you can skip that thing. Okay, great. Okay, that's the first step. Second step is you could build large satellites. Um uh you can if, if you want to build a satellite that's too big to fit under a rocket fairing, that's the bit that goes on the on the outside of the the payload. Um uh you you can't do that and then launch it, you have to do it in constructed in orbit and space settlement people are perfectly uh, situated. Um this the 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 next level is you make space polar satellites space power settlements uh satellites space power settlements space settlement power um and the basic idea is you you have a huge system in in orbit it collects energy from the sun no nighttime no well almost no nighttime uh no um uh, no rain no clouds and you you convert it to a, a frequency that will get through the clouds and get through the rain and you beam it to earth and you sell electricity. There's a huge market for electricity enough to fund space settlement for a long long time. And so that and that 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 way uh, you can work. Now, the event that changed me is I I used to used to be a musician, I'd say. And I realized at some point I wasn't I was okay, but I wasn't that great, okay? Um I realized that my job we mostly played bars. My job was to get people to drink. And I realized that I wasn't really adding a whole lot to society, right? <laughs> I wasn't like being a useful. I thought I want to do something. I I always been good at, at science and math. And so I decided I want to go back to school and I'm going to going to get my degree in some sort of science or math 
and then I'm going to go out and, and, and make the world a better place. And so I went, moved to, UC, to Santa Cruz, went to UC, UCSC, and I was doing this the plan just exactly as, as, uh, as I was described. And I had a, a, a housemate living in yeah, the other room, it was a two bedroom place. And uh, he did odd jobs. And one of the jobs he did was to um, uh, take a huge pile of co-evolutionary quarterly, quarterly magazines. This was a magazine, a sort of a counterculture techie group back in the 70s and 80s, 90s. And this is in the 70s, it happened to me. And he brought it home. And they're great, really interesting. And one of the issues was all about Gerard K. O'Neill and all about free space settlements. And I just I just thought this was this is great. This is this is fantastic. This is this is I, this is what I'm gonna do. Okay. This is this is what I went back to school for. And so I um, I was I was I was in the hallway, I was ranting about space space settlements, how great they were, and I wanted to do all this sort of stuff. And this big tall guy touched me on the shoulder, and he was a guy in some of my classes. Their name was Terry Thomas, who's no longer with us, I'm afraid. Um, and he said, Would you like to work at NASA? And I thought, oh yeah, I want to learn at NASA. Absolutely, that's what I want to do. Sign me up. And uh, and they did that when I graduated. I I, uh, I, I interviewed, I got a, got a job at NASA Ames Research Center. On uh, my first day at work, I had $17 to my name, which was not enough to pay for gas to get to work uh, until my first paycheck came. So fortunately, my employer came by with, with some extra money. And I worked at NASA Ames Research Center for 39 years. Now, a lot of that was spent working on, on aircraft, uh, but I did a lot of stuff. Uh, I worked on Hubble Space Telescope, the X-37, uh, and helped with uh, analyzing bone that had been exposed to weightlessness to get at that issue of uh, whether children can live on 1/3 G or 1/6 G. Um, I worked on space solar power satellites. I, I started this contest, which I understand you were in, a uh, contest for kids. Uh, and there was thousands and thousands of kids over the last 25 years have gone through this program of designing their own space settlement and competing with it. Um, and uh, I, I went to Ames for 39 years and then uh, as, as a contractor, I'm never, never a civil servant. Um, and that was, that was the, uh, that was a good piece of work. I'm, I'm retired now. So I have my connections to NASA Ames are, are much less. Okay. Oh, and what would be, I, uh, what would I recommend to somebody? Oh, that's good. Thank you. Um, what would I recommend to somebody who want to do this? Well, that to, today there's a lot more challenge ways to go. If you just want to go to space. Just somehow get yourself into space for at least a little while. The simplest way, although it's not necessarily uh, uh, easy, is to become very rich. If you're very rich, you can hide, you've got enough, if you have enough money, you can spend at least $250,000 on you know, your passion. Um, then you can get a seat on Virgin Galactic vehicle. It'll take you up into Earth and bring you back down um, uh, in about 10 minutes. Okay. And if you want a, a bigger experience, you know, you want to stay up there for a few days or a, a week or something like that, uh, you can fly with on a, a Falcon 9 with a, with a Dragon on it that um, it'll cost you about, I think, $65 million to stay for a week or something like that. Okay. So that's one way to do it. Um, the other way is maybe, you just, maybe what you really want to do is contribute. I, mean, I never really had any illusions about going into space myself. Uh, but I, what I wanted to do is kind of contribute to, to making that happen. 
Okay? And, um, and that, I think the most important thing is learn to be really good at something you really like. Okay? So take, take what, you what you really enjoy, what you really want to do, and find out how to apply that to a space settlement-based career. Because almost anything you want to do, you know, like maybe juggler will not work, but, but there, are, there are many other things that, that will work. Um, you, know, uh, you know, NASA is full of engineers, but it's like a whole lot of marketing people and, 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 uh, and, and people that communicate with the public and, and, and do things like, like that. Um, you, you don't, if you're not particularly good in engineering or you just don't like it very much, there's lots of other things you can do to help out. You can produce videos, you know. Now, one of the things you, now, and most of that, now you'd like to get a job and get paid to do it, right? But somehow you've got to get that first job. And one way to do it, and you might end up staying for a while, is, um, is joining one of the space organizations. There's a lot of space organizations. The one I happen to, to be with is called the National Space Society, NSS. And um, when you can, you can sign up, for, it costs a, a few dollars a year, you know, a few tens of dollars a year. And you get various things. And what you can do once you're sort of in the in the hut is you can volunteer to do work. So you, the idea is you, you volunteer to do um, to do work, and you and you try to do it in areas where you'll have a chance to meet people, because it's people that get you, you know. And so you get yourself so you know know some people in the business, and, and maybe they'll come and help you out to to get your first job, or maybe you can just say, you know, part of your your interview is, you know, I'm a member of the National Space Society, and I love space. Space settlement, blah 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 blah, whatever that is, um, and there's a there's a whole world of possibilities. Oh, and by the way, India has got a very strong space program. It's not NASA, but it's very good, and it's actually arguably one of the biggest, uh, most powerful um, organization when it comes to Earth resource. So um, there's lots of stuff to do. This is very practical um, uh, application of of space, and at the same time, you learn a lot about how to, how to do these sorts of things. So I would recommend uh, join the National Space Society or some other space uh, organization. Um, National Space Society has um, uh, chapters in India. Um, and uh, study up on the, the, uh, uh, the Indian space program. Keep track of it and see if there's a little bit of it coming your way. And, uh, you know, best of luck. Thank you for that answer, sir. That was very inspirational. And I'm sure um, the spectators who will be watching this podcast, um, they would be inspired to pursue a career that can make humanity multiplanetary and hopefully um, in the not very far future, interstellar or even intergalactic. I don't know how far that is, but um, thank you so much for your time. So this has been a very wonderful time for me and I hope you enjoyed it too. Just a moment. I would like to push our book. It's cheap. It's on Amazon. We don't make any money to speak of. I think I make about eighty dollars uh, every couple of months, uh, but it's it uh, a, a comprehensive look at, at space settlement and in particularly the, uh, the evidence and, and the, uh, the ideas for that whole idea behind uh, putting your first space settlement in low Earth orbit. Um, yeah, thank you so much for this opportunity. It was, it was really great. Please stay in touch, and um, hopefully we will meet again in another forum. Thank you, sir. Let's hope that. Once this pandemic settles down, you could come down to IIT Guwahati and we could host you there and interact with you. That would be great. Thank you, sir. That would be great.